Hello, viewers. Today we've got Jake with us, and we're going to be talking about the Japanese mafia. Is it pronounced Yakuza? It is pronounced Yakuza. That is okay. correct. My sister so, lived in Japan. They have lived many in names for themselves and many names in Japan. Yeah, my sister's fluent in Japanese. She lived there for many years. And um, she really loved it. She she told me about the Yakuza. So, Jake, can you just start out by telling the viewers a little bit about you and what got you onto this? Sure. Um, I uh, came to Japan in 1988 as an exchange student. And my first job out of uh, college was working for a Japanese newspaper, the Yomiri Shimbun, uh, which is the biggest newspaper in Japan. Um, I think it had 10 million readers at its peak, um, as newspaper, you know, readers decline, maybe, maybe 6 million. Um, and like every reporter in Japan, you start on the police beat. That I mean, that's where everybody starts. Uh, sorry, I'm going to try and turn off the, the various doodads <laughs> on the, on the computer. Let's, let's see if we can get the mail to turn off without turning off you guys. Um, and so. I think uh, the very first year that I was on the beat, there was a complicated case involving um, a serial killer, um, actually a husband and wife team serial killers. And one of their victims was a Yakuza boss and the Yakuza boss driver. And part of my job was trying to find out, you know, in the stages when we didn't actually know what had happened to them, what had happened to them. Um, and that was the beginning of sort of having to, to chase around Yakuza and, de and deal with them. Um, my reward for a job well done was my second year. I was put on the police headquarters in Saitama, which is kind of outside of Tokyo. It's sort of the, the Brixton of, of Tokyo. Um, and, uh, you know, my boss told me, okay, Adelstein, like your assignment now is you're going to be covering theft public security and organized crime task force one and two. And, and actually I was hoping to cover homicide because that was a much more sexy job to have at the time. Um, and he was like, well, you know, 30% of the Yakuza are foreigners, the Koreans, or some Taiwanese and you're a foreigner. So you should fit right in. Mm -hmm. And, and that began the 30, 30 years of covering Japan's organized crime groups, of which there are many. Uh, I think when people say the Yakuza, um, that's confusing because it's not a monolithic organization. It's not one. It's about 20, 25 different organizations, each with its own turf and territory, history, um, power structures, names for their bosses. Fortunately, you know, if you're a young reporter starting on this job, you can go to the newsstand and buy a Yakuza fan magazine, <laughs> which will have a picture of all the various guys and their names and their titles and their organizations. And, you know, you can study so you can sort of know who's who. Um, just like in the TV series, you know, that's that's one thing that they, you know, that we got right. Yeah, there are Yakuza fan scenes that are very useful if you're trying to know who's who in that world. Well, you've got me gripped from the get-go. So many questions. I don't know whether to start with the serial killer stuff or... No, let's go over some basics first. Okay. So, you know, we think when we hear mafia, we think of the Italian mafia. And perhaps, you know, we're aware of how that started and how it's structured. I'm not, I have no idea how the Yakuza started and how it is structured. Could you cover that? Sure. 
so um you know let's skip the mythology and start with with you know sort of the basics of the yakuza so originally they're kind of federations of two kinds of sort of outlaws one were street merchants which they're called tekia and the other were called bakuto which were gamblers so you know gambling is always illegal so the ones who are running the gambling um you know we're providing entertainment in the area and with you know running gambling you also have to provide some kind of uh protection and from you know from thieves who might prey on other gamblers and are you know people who won't pay their money um and then the merchants were sort of traveling merchants who basically if you you know japan's festivals were usually run by the yakuza or what we what we would consider the yakuza so they're selling things on the streets um during the during japan's many festivals they're the ones running the stalls and selling yakitori or you know chicken on a stick and those other things the earliest you know what we consider modern organized crime group was aizuko tetsukai um which was in kyoto um where nintendo had its headquarters actually um and they were found by a guy named uh, you know isaac kotetsu he was called kotetsu because he was really tiny but he had a fist of iron <laughs> and you know they expanded from just running gambling to loan sharking to you know small businesses uh extortion racketeering um and then you know the yamaguchigumi which is the oldest yakuza group was founded in 1915 as kind of a federation of dock workers in Kobe, which is a port city. Um, and, you know, they've been around now for a hundred years. That's makes them one of the oldest Japanese companies ever. Um, and, you know, even the Yamaguchi was essentially founded as kind of a corporation. So, you know, ostensibly they're, uh, you know, a sort of labor union, but they're providing temporary staffing and then they're running small scale prostitution, loan sharking, all these things. It was only after the Second World War that there was a period of kind of lawlessness in Japanese society. The Japanese police force were basically unarmed. They had been forbidden to um, they'd been forbidden to deal with, imprison, or harass what were called third-party nationals. So all these people who were brought over to Japan as slave labor—the Koreans, the Taiwanese, the Chinese—you um, know. They began sort of taking revenge on their Japanese captors, and they also began running the black markets because um, they had access to the bases. The Japanese nationals couldn't get to the bases; everything was in short supply. And during this period of chaos, um, these yakuza groups came back and reformed, um, and essentially were sort of a second police force. Now, after a year went by, and the Japanese police were sort of put back into power and given the you know the power to handle everyone including third-party nationals the age of sort of yakuza working as a second police force kind of faded away but they had already sort of secured a power base all over japan in tokyo in kobe in all the other areas and the police kind of looked the other way because you know the yakuza were providing not only kind of street security and a second police force but entertainment right you know there's not a lot to do in post-war japan um, except, you know, go to a festival, uh, gamble a little bit. And, you know, they quickly went from being sort of disorganized crime to organized crime very quickly. And some groups like the Yamaguchi Gumi um, 
were smart enough to absorb like the Korean mafia. So that, you know, the, the Koreans informed like uh, Yanagawa Ika, they sort of their own, um, their own kind of, you know, organized crime groups. And some like the Yamaguchi were like, hey, you know, like it's a meritocracy. Why don't you come join us? Um, and, you know, we'll offer you some protection from the police because they, they're okay with us, not they're not okay with you. And uh, you've got a really good business sense. We can learn from each other. And so everybody merged. And then, you know, jumping ahead of myself here, but the conservative forces, um, the, you know, the, the people that helped bring you World War II, um, Kodama Yoshio and these right-wingers and these war profiteers were released from prison um, as, the, as the U.S. decided that to prevent Japan from becoming communist, that they're going to need to let some of the old guard go. And these guys who came back with money, um, you know, to consolidate power and form Japan's first political party, the Liberal Democratic Party, um, tied up with the Yakuza, um, Japan's leading democratic, leading political party, which has sort of ruled the country for mostly, you know, except for brief periods for ever since 1950s, the Liberal Democratic Party was founded by a Yakuza broker named Kodami Oshio. Um, so when you have, you know, your own politicians, um, you know, and you have deep political connections, you flourish. Um, I'm going to give you a very brief history. And then one other thing that really helped them uh, gain power and money um, was in the 19, about 1950, uh, methamphetamines, which had been legal during the Second World War, um, was something that Japan supplied to most of the soldiers, especially the kamikaze as part of the rations. Um, the Japanese government realized this is a bad idea. Um, we should probably not allow people to buy this over the counter. You still get, you know, if you want to, if you want to sort of s a second history of Japanese war atrocities, it's like what happens when you put an entire army on meth? Bad things. Um, anyway, the Japanese government banned it, and then the yakuza were like, "Oh, we know how to make this stuff," and so they began selling it because there were a lot of addicts, and that brought in a lot of money. Now, some groups like the Yamaguchi were like, oh, you know, meth is a bad thing. So ostensibly, they banned the usage of drugs uh, and meth amongst their men um, and even set up a organization for the elimination of drugs from Japan. So, you know, the Yamaguchi founded this organization, which was heavily advertised about getting rid of drugs from Japan. And, you know, they always insisted that they were humanitarian organizations preserving the Japanese traditions and keeping the country safe. So they never said we're organized crime groups. And, and since after the Second World War, you know, people had, had a lot of mistrust for the Japanese government. Um, the right to assemble was considered very important. And so these groups were not regulated in any way. You know, they existed way out in the open. And, and to some extent, um, the police wouldn't touch them or, or deal with them. So they gained a lot of power very quickly. I mean, they gained so much power and they were so much in the public eye that I think Japan's wrestling federation at a time when wrestling was a huge business in Japan, you know, pro wrestling was what people were into. At one time, the head of that federation included the head of the Yamaguchi Gumi, uh, hmm. the head of another organized crime group, and Kodami Yoshio, the right-wing nationalist, you know, up to 1960. And so, you know, uh, some of... Uh, 
the Yamaguchi-gumi um, set up a talent agency called Kobe Yenosha, which had um, some of Japan's most famous singers and entertainers as part of their um, organization. So, you know, meanwhile, so you have the Yakuza basically um, running a lot of the streets in Japan, um, openly having businesses, construction companies, entertainment firms. And then Kodama Yoshio decided and kind of like uh, something reminiscent of this fictional movie called The Warriors, you know, in which all the gangs of New York unite to unite all the Yakuza groups and create a federation of them, um, which which he did. So, you know, they created this huge federation of organized crime groups and they sent a letter to the Liberal Democratic Party uh, about 1960, which which with, you know, suggestions as to what they need to do. Um, and at the time in the diet, the parliament, there was one former reporter for the Mainichi newspaper. He was like, you know, when the Yakuza began telling us how we should be running our country, we have a problem. Mm. Uh, and that began to spark the, you know, also with the Olympics coming in 1964, suddenly the Japanese government decided that we need to crack down. That began the first crackdown and the first attempt by the government to, to tell people like, no, Yakuza are bad, very bad. We need to, we need to get rid of them. But of course, you know, that was not very successful. And, uh, you know, the, the Yakuza continued to hold power for many, many years. Um, tremendous amounts of power, tremendous amounts of capital. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't realize it was so deeply ingrained. So the crackdowns then, were they successful? Yeah, I mean, they were successful in the sense they got some groups to disband, you know, like they sort of, sort of, and it was more kind of like a show, like, okay, we're disbanding, and they, you know, uh, disbanded, but they changed their name, and they went right back to doing what they were doing under a different name. Um, uh, Taoka-san, who is the head of the Yamaguchi Gumi, who was born on March 28, 1913. I know his birthday because it's the one of the only few famous people in Japan I share a birthday with is the godfather of godfathers. Um, obviously, like there's a big difference between 1913 and 1969, but we were both born on March 28th. Anyway, Taoka-san, um, who was a very charismatic figure, um, and probably the you know the, the, the smartest of the Yakuza bosses was basically told the police, he said, even if there's only, even if I'm the only one left in this organization, I will never disband the organization, which is why the Amaguchi Gumi has like a hundred years of history, more than a hundred years, because he refused to disband. And the police were basically unable to do anything about it. I mean, they cracked down on him. They arrested his people um, on whatever charges they could find. The, you know, the laws were modified so that, um, it used to be that you could only arrest people gambling if you caught them in the act, right? They had to be at, you know, like they basically had to have the cards in their hand, mm -hmm. um, which was, you know, and, and the fact that they wouldn't change that was kind of a sort of like, you know, a thumb in the eye of the of the Americans, right? Um, you know, so, you know, the Yakuza were continue doing that with impunity and then they changed the law and you could arrest them after the fact. And so that helped them put a couple of bosses in jail. Um, but one thing I should say, um, one reason is that the Japan, Japan tolerated the Yakuza for so long, and the, what makes them different from the Italian mafia, is that um, 
every organization has a general has a set of rules that the members are supposed to follow the things that will get them banished and in general while there's some variations um, these rules often posted on the wall of the organization usually in ornate cursive letters which are you cannot steal you cannot commit robbery that is you know stealing with force uh, you can't sexually assault people you know especially in your own neighborhood um, and you can't bother ordinary people and you can't have unnecessary contact with the authorities what that means is you know the the police and the officer for many years communicated with each other on a regular basis but you couldn't tell them everything that you were doing you couldn't give them too much information um, but because they didn't get involved in street crime didn't break into people's houses. They didn't allow purse snatchings and robberies on their territory. You know, to some extent, you know, if you had them in your neighborhood, you were safe. They would never bother people in their own neighborhood um, where they had their offices. Um, and, you know, they sort of provided the service. Which the services were, you know, you paid them protection money if you had any kind of trouble, you know, hoodlums hanging out in the area, customers wouldn't pay their bills. Um, you know, noise from construction, you know, making it impossible to do karaoke, you could go to them and they would take care of those problems for you. <laughs> wow. Okay. So if there were these crackdowns, but this, they remained deeply ingrained because it's kind of like they sacrificed elements, but then they reformed. How does that carry through to the present day? Does that mean they're still as powerful as ever or did the power peak? Um. I think what happened is, uh, sorry, it's like it's a little bit too bright or weirdly bright. Um, <laughs> you know, with like everybody, they get greedy, just like the, um, you know, the Italians. You know, so it's like, okay, you know, meth is good money, so they got involved in meth. Um, during, especially during Japan's kind of real estate bubble, starting in the late eighties. At first, the Yakuza were basically working for the banks. Like, you know, real estate is valuable. Whatever you can acquire, you can turn around and sell very quickly. Um, but Japan has very strong renters' laws. So it's very hard to evict people. Um, you know, you, you can take them to court. It takes forever. Um, you, you're often going to lose. As long as someone is paying rent, they have a right to live where they live. It's a good thing. But um, the Yakuza quickly were hired by banks and real estate companies to terrorize people to leave their property, which is something that normally technically really only a lawyer is allowed to do. Um, and so they began doing this and, you know, uh, banks would terrorize people, clean out these neighborhoods, um, consolidate the properties, sell them, huge buildings would go up, a lot of money was being made. And at one point the Yakuza were like, well, why, why should we be the middleman? Like, well, instead of, Instead of just chasing out the tenants, why aren't we acquiring the properties ourselves and turning them around? So they became heavily involved in the real estate industry. Hmm. And gradually, you know, despite their, you know, uh, ability to manipulate the press and um, project this public image of themselves, people became very tired of, of, of paying protection money to the Yakuza. Um, and they became tired of getting evicted from their homes are knowing people were evicted from their homes by the Yakuza. So the real estate bubble collapses, and it turns out like that a lot of these 
distressed properties that are going to have to be seized, um, you know, are owned by the Yakuza. And the Yakuza are not graceful about, um, you know, taking losses. Uh, <laughs> and as, as the banks start foreclosing on them, one or two bank off bank managers get killed and whacked. And suddenly, you know, no one wants to touch those properties. Let me just pause you there. Did they have a preferred method of executing bank managers? Uh, shooting them. You know, Japan is a country with very uh, strict gun laws. Uh, almost, you know, it is possible to get a hunting license, but almost no one owns a gun. And the penalties for owning and the penalties for using a gun or owning a gun or owning a bullet are so severe that you no know, ordinary citizen will deal with them. Yeah, if you shoot someone, uh, that sends a message that it's the Yakuza. Um, and you don't have to shoot that many bankers for them to fall in line. Wow. Um, you know, what? there's a saying in Japanese, hyakkai, uh, what is it? Ichibatsu hyakkai shikazu, which is basically one punishment is worth 100 rules. Um, so, you know, make an example out of one person and, and that's enough. Um, and I think that the original, I think it was a Sumitomo bank manager who was shot to death. I don't think that was ever solved. Um, but, you know, suddenly you have these, you know, this economic crisis, all, you know, Japan is heavily in debt. There's all these companies that are, um, you know, lost millions to the Yakuza. And in some sense, the taxpayers are supposed to bail them out. And so the Japanese government was like, okay, you know what? This is about 1991. It's like, you know, we, we need to do something about organized crime. And it's also becoming sort of an embarrassment because it's being written about, like, you know, Japan's gangsters are doing interviews mm -hmm. during the bubble period. You know, uh, it became very clear that Japan's gangsters were like, you know, Chicago style Al Capone, mm -hmm. you know, mobsters, right? They're, they've got fan magazines they're in your face. People know who they are. The Japanese government and police don't seem to be able to do anything about them or want to do anything about them. Um, so very weak laws were put on the books in 1992, these anti-organized crime laws. And um, Itami Juzo, who was a famous film director there, made this movie called Minbon Ona, The Gentle Art of Japanese Extortion, which was um, a dark comedy about dealing with the Yakuza. And the message of the film was that if you work with the police and you work with lawyers, lawyers who specialize in dealing with organized crime. I mean, that says a lot about a country when you have a subclass of lawyers who all they do is deal with organized crime problems, right? There's fewer of them now as the Yakuza fade away. Um, but, you know, that was a specialized part of the industry. Like, how do you deal with the Yakuza? How do you break contracts with them? How do you get them off of your property? How do you stop them from harassing you? Um, anyway, that was the message of his film which lampooned the Yakuza. It made them look like dishonorable thugs. Um, and and the, most of this film is set in a very fancy hotel modeled after an actual hotel in Kobe in which the Yakuza are like, you know, constantly harassing the hotel staff, extorting money from the hotel, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in hundreds of ways. So they're portrayed in the not a very nice fashion. Um, and the movie was a hit, but one 
crime boss in particular, Godot Talamasa, did not like the film uh, because it because it made fun of him and it did not put the actors in a good light. So five of his goons grabbed the film director um, in the parking lot in front of his house and then carved up his face very slowly. Um, so it would leave marks um, and then uh, fled and they were caught. And the film director, Itami Juzo, had a press conference. Um, and I think for many people, uh, it, you know, it was kind of a wake up call, like, oh yeah, the Yakuza, they're like, these are bad people. Like, just like in this movie, this is what they do. They extort money. Uh, they, they don't, they don't add any, they don't add value. Uh, they use, you know, fraudulent schemes to get cash out of innocent citizens. Um, all this talk about not bothering ordinary people. Um, that's all a lie too. Um, they're preying on ordinary people and that began turning the tide. But really, um, these anti-organized crime laws, and I think I've got a chapter in the last chapter because I'm talking about this in great detail, um, were, were designed so that basically you got a, the Yakuza got a warning. Uh, the second was a cease and desist. And third strike was you would actually get arrested. So in many ways for the Yakuza, this was kind of like a great thing. So, you know, instead of getting their members arrested for extortion, um, you'd get a warning, you know, and you could do it a second time. And then, you know, then if it's like you got a, you got a warning in, like, it's okay, we can quit. So you kind of knew when to quit. And one of the things that also has made the Yakuza trend successful is as a member, the benefits are pretty good. In this sense, not only did the Yamaguchi Gumi start offering kind of like a retirement plan hmm. starting in the late 90s as uh, when the when the group split apart into various factions. Um, but if you remember the Yakuza and you, you know, committed a crime on behalf of the organization, whether that was an assassination or um, roughing up someone who wouldn't pay protection money and you went to jail, um, they took care of you. I mean, they took care of you in the sense that, you know, while you were in jail, your family was looked after, uh, you know, someone would regularly was putting money into your account in the prison so you could buy, you know, little tobacco and sundries and things, or they would bringing things directly to you in prison. And when you got out, you got a promotion and a lot of cash. Um, so that really helps ensure loyalty. Um, and, and, you know, I to, to their credit, um, not only did they do that for, um, uh, you know, your family, like, you know, but, you, you know, if you had a wife and a mistress, they looked after both of them, you know, because, you know, that's, they're you know, very family oriented, right? They understand that maybe not all people you need to support are necessarily your own family. So that was good. Um, and, and it also discouraged people from... Uh, ratting out members of the police. One of the reasons the Yakuza have never been crushed in the way that you saw with the Italian mafia is that um, until, you know, two or three years ago, there was no plea bargaining in Japan, which means that, you know, there's no incentive for anyone to rat out the person above them, right? Most of the time, if you're arrested as a Yakuza, the Yakuza provide the, law, the lawyer. I mean, there are a whole genre of lawyers that are basically Yakuza lawyers. That's all they do. <laughs> a lot of them are ex-prosecutors. So they, they know, if you know how to prosecute someone, you also know how to screw up a prosecution so that they can't be prosecuted well. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, 
once you're arrested, it's like your lawyer shows up. He's provided by the organization. Any statement that you make also is going to be shown to the people at the top of the organization because that's your lawyer, right? Your lawyer isn't really your lawyer. You could you can refuse it, but then of course that already arouses suspicion. So, you know, what are the benefits of ratting out your someone above you? Absolutely none. It says the Japanese say a hundred a hundred negatives without a single plus. So this really encouraged people to keep their mouth shut. It's like you keep your mouth shut. You know, you do the crime, you do the time, you get a reward. If you, if you, you know, give someone up, when you get out of prison, you're probably going to disappear. The the Yakuza don't kill like the Mexican mafia. They're not, except for, for some people like Koto Tadamasa and the Kudokai. Um, generally speaking, you know, the heat that that brings from killing someone isn't worth um, the attention you get from the police and the damaged operations. But doesn't mean they're not above a judicious killing now and then, you know, just to make a point, right? You know, if you if you threaten people every now and then, you actually have to follow up on those threats. So that leads me then to ask you about the ranking of the various people involved. So you've got associates, made men, capos, bosses in the Italian mafia. Is there a similar structure or? Well, so... You know, we'll, we'll start with the Yamaguchi because it's probably, it's the biggest, most representative. The Inagawa Kai, which is the third biggest, is also has its own, um, its own structures. Uh, if, if you, if you're looking at, if you, you know, people who, who haven't read Tokyo Vice or, or The Last Yakuza, um, and you just watch the TV series, which, which is okay. I mean, it's probably would benefit you to read a book or two in your life. Um, just saying, um. <laughs> The Chiharakai, which is sort of the good Yakuza in the TV series, are modeled off to the Inagawa Kai. And the bad Yakuza, the Tozawa Gumi, and the organization above them are kind of modeled after the Yamaguchi Gumi. They're from Kansai. So basically, it's a pyramid structure, a setup kind of like a nuclear family with no women. Um, you know, at the very top of the organization is the first-tier group. So in there, you've got the kumicho, the big kumicho, or the kaicho, the chairman, or the you know, the group, organ, or the president of the group, however you want to translate it. And then under him, you have the wakagashira, which is um, the number two. It literally means young head. You know, even though the wakagashira of the Yamaguchi is like in his 80s now, you know, that's a whole other issue. Mm -hmm. And then you have all the older brothers and younger brothers and people below them. And then... You have got a group of sort of second tier bosses, which are which are called the Jikisan, so the direct lieutenants. So there's about a hundred of them, and then under them you have the third tier groups. So everybody pays to the top. Everybody has a sort of, you know, an oyabun or a father figure above them, except the very top of the organization. So, like this Sakasa Shinobu, he's the head of the Yamaguchi Gumi. Has been the head since 2005. Um, I think he's in his 70s or 80s now, I forget. But, you know, under him, you have, you know, his organization, and then under that, there's the second-tier organizations, the third-tier organizations. Um, the ranking is usually Oyabun, father figure, um, the, you know, the Wakagashira, then the head of the headquarters, Hombucho. And number three is actually, I've been told, the best place to be. You control the money, um, 
you don't have to go to the ceremonies. The police are always trying to arrest the number one or the number two. And so you have a sort of like wonderful sort of position where you have power and money and time and are less likely to go to jail. Um, and then under the hombucho, which is, you know, uh, you have all the various sort of older brothers and then younger brothers. And, and that is basically the structure of the organization. It, it gets a little more complicated is because this idea of brotherhood in, in, in the Japanese mafia, you know, can be a older brother, younger brother relationship, or can be a brother, brother relationship, um, or it can be like, you know, like you're 60% superior than me and I'm 40% superior than you, you know, the relationships of these brotherhoods usually sealed by ceremonial ties with a sake glass, sometimes just sealed by a beer. Um, is, you know, it's kind of a proclamation of friendship. Like, I like you. Like, I admire you the way you do things. Like, you're my buddy. Okay, you know, now we're Kyodaibun. Now we're brothers. Um, that can also extend to people outside of your organization. So that becomes a kind of weird diplomacy, kind of like medieval marriages and stuff. So, for example, the uh, in the Yamaguchi-gumi, um, Takuchi-san, who's one of the top members of the Kodokai, he has a blood brother relationship of equal proportions with uh, Uchibori Kazuo, who is the head now of the of the Inagawa Kai. So there are these two groups, you know, supposedly supposed to be rivals, but the tops of the organization are are blood brothers. You know, I, the, I, the, I don't think the Yakuza use the word blood brothers because that would actually be um, in relations by blood, but they're Kyodaibun, they're brothers through this pledge of you know, brotherhood, um, that makes it very hard for them to go to war, right? Because you're my brother. You know, we're supposed to get along. We, we like each other. And that makes the other organizational members toe the line. So, the, you know, uh, uh, except for the Yamaguchi-gumi, which split apart um, into one group, into two groups in 2015, and then the other groups, there's not a lot of gang wars among the Yakuza these days. There used to be. Um, it's just not profitable. Um, and everybody tries to get along because, you know, that works better. It wasn't always that way. Um, so you have these weird things where, like, Yakuza groups send each other, you know, New Year's cards. You know, can you imagine, like, you know, you know the uh, the Chinese mafia and the uh, you know, Italian mafia bosses sending each other New Year's cards? Because first of all, I know where you live, right? <laughs> so the guy on the magazine cover, have they tried to arrest him? Oh, uh, yeah, they have. They actually, you know, like asked shortly after power, um, they were basically able to put him in jail for a very long time on gun charges. And it worked like this. His his bodyguard had a gun on him, like, you know, on as he was coming up to Tokyo. And the rationale of the court was, you know, obviously, you know, that your bodyguard is armed. That makes you an accessory to possessing a gun. And they put him away in jail for a long time like that. His... uh. His number two, they were later able to put away on extortion charges. Um, let's see if we can find a picture of him. His number two uh, has like sort of his eye perpetually squinty. It's just really terrifying. Um, <laughs> Takayama Kyoshi. Are they? Are they both? Are they both released now? Yeah, they're both out of jail. Uh, are they, are they back in the back in the same spots? Yeah, back in the same spots. Um, 
let's see if we have Takayama over here. It's, I mean, what's kind of fascinating about this is like this tells you well, this tell you a lot about the Yakuza visually. Um, first of all, you've got the, you know, this magazine went off by the way, was finally forced out of business in about the year 2018. So there are no monthly magazines. There are weekly magazines that still have updates on the Yakuza, but you know, as a Yakuza watcher, mm-hmm. uh, okay. Just pointing this out here because it's kind of relevant. They always have penis enlargement ads. <laughs> um, the uh, incidentally, the head of the Kudokai, which is a which is probably the most violent yakuza group in Japan, um, Nomura, um, Mister Nomura, who is facing the death penalty, um, he saw one of these ads and he got a penis enlargement procedure, and his nurse laughed at him when he was getting it done and said, you know, I can't believe that, a, you know, a guy who's so heavily tattooed like you can't deal with a little prick of a, of a needle. <laughs> um, and he was so angry uh, that allegedly he put a uh, hit out on the nurse um, who survived. Uh, but that was of, of the many charges that were against him, including some actual murders. Oh. It's one of the reasons he probably got the death penalty. Wow, Jake, you started out telling us about a serial killer. Oh yeah, what? yeah. What can we can we get a bit of details on that story, please? Because it sounded fascinating. Oh, oh, okay. So the serial killer story. So in Saitama, um, there was uh, a, actually an ex yakuza named Sekine again, and his wife Hiroko, who were running a pet shop. They'd been running a pet shop for years. Um, but one of the things that sometimes they, you know, they'd sell people purebred dogs at a very exorbitant prices, but sometimes they would sell them a dog that was sick or couldn't reproduce. And then when people would complain to them or say, okay, I'm going to the police because you defrauded me. Um, you know, I, I, he and his wife would kill them, uh, and chop up the body, uh, and feed it to the dogs. And so over a 10 year period, uh, about 10 people disappeared around Sakine again. And then maybe he just got, um, you know, convinced that he was untouchable in about 90, starting around 92, 91, 91, 92, about four people around him vanished. One was a housewife, one was a businessman. Um, and the other was this Yakuza boss named Endo and his um, driver, Wakui. Uh, and, you know, the, the thing they all had in common was they're all closely dealing with Sekine again and his wife, and they vanished. Um, and, you know, the Saitama police had known that there were people around the vanishing for, you know, for years. But, you know, the investigations had never gone anywhere. Um, so they really began looking at these people in, like, 1992. Uh, and, you know, in 1993, when I first joined the Yomiri Shimbun, I was at the Saitama, we, everybody understood, you know, that the police were investigating this and they were looking, you know, at these missing, missing people. And, you know, I think we had uh, about four new, four newbies on the police beat, right? So we're all, you know, in, in addition to our daily duties, we, everybody got assigned a missing person to look for, you know, knowing that the police would probably eventually make arrests. So I got assigned to find out what happened to Endo and his 
driver. Um, and this is, you know, in northern Saitama, Konanmachi. So, you know, one of the things that we, that we realized as we were working on the story is that someone from the organized crime task force had been sent to join the homicide squad um, because, you know, homicide detectives are not very good with Yakuza. That's not their forte, right? They're not good at interrogating these people. They don't understand the psychology. They don't know how to get information out of them. Um, so as I began tracking this Yakuza boss and, you know, and his, uh, and his colleague, um, trying to figure out, you know, why Sekin again would want them dead. De definitely, there was no, there was no, there was no doubt that that they knew each other very well. Um, I also realized that this cop who had been sent from the organized crime task force to the homicide squad probably knew a lot. Um, and so, after many, you know, after many efforts, you know, I sort of befriended. I, well, I did. I befriended. I befriended him and his family. Um, through persistence, through bringing ice cream to his kids, um, just like in the TV series. I think Katagiri is modeled after this detective, Detective Sekuchi. And, you know, and to some extent, he would sort of tell me what was going on in the investigation. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, not enough that I could really have a, a scoop early on. Because, you know, they were trying various methods to, arrests second again because typically Japanese cops um, when there's a homicide investigation arrest someone on a lesser charge and then use the 23 days that you can hold someone in jail without much access to their lawyer um, to browbeat them into confessing to the actual crime they want them for which is murder often the first step in a homicide investigation is someone is arrested for improperly disposing of the body I mean it mm. always follows that pattern almost always or some other minor charge like extortion or you know um you know or you know even bizarre things like not registering your new car in the place that you moved to whatever you can use to get them into jail so you can interrogate them but so what's interesting is i don't know anything about yakuza at this point i mean i really don't um so you know you know, I went to the, the boss that disappeared. You know, Endo was a member of Takaragumi. So I'm like, okay, I'll just go to the Takaragumi office, which is outside of this park in Konanmachi and ring the doorbell. And I, I didn't. I rang the doorbell and like, you know, and I introduced myself. And like three seconds later, these thugs come running out like, rah, rah, and I'm just running away to the taxi park nearby. And I was like, okay, clearly, clearly this isn't working the way that I wanted it to. So... <laughs> <laughs> you know there were there were other ways to approach the organized crime group um so it was kind of trial by fire um but you know you know i i was able to find through just persistence and talking to people and you know and in this town where the endo was uh, the number two in the organization takanagumi people liked it i mean like people were concerned about it you know like like what happened to endo yeah where did he disappear Someone directed me to uh, a bar where his mistress was working. Like everybody knew he had a mistress. It was kind of like, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, his, his, I mean, I guess his, you know, I guess his wife, uh, who I who never would talk to me, um, was, you know, I, I mean, I just, I would guess that's the way it was. And uh, I ended up dating the mistress for a while. I think in the 
Tokyo Vice the book, I just sort of disguised her name a little bit, but I don't think at this point she cares anymore because she's married with a different name, so it doesn't matter. Um, you know, whether it's like 93, it's like been 30 years, I think we're okay. Um, and I didn't use her real name in the book anyway. Uh, but at the time I was writing the book, I was still like, mm, probably better shade these details a little bit. Um, <laughs> Uh, and she was interesting, you know, um, and she, and she was turned out to be a great source, um, as to, you know, how he knew Sekini again and what their relationship was. And it became apparent to me from the conversation I had with her, um, and other of his brothers and associates that he had been blackmailing Sekini again, that he had figured out how Sekini had killed two people and what he had done um, and was extorting money from, from him. And Sekine was kind of a celebrity, you know, cause he appeared on TV, Japanese TV shows. He was making a lot of money. He was opening a new, a new pet shop called African kennel. He was, you know, the whole business in purebred dogs was a huge, you know, scam, but money-making scam. Um, and, and, you know, and it turned out eventually what we we you know what we found out was that um uh he had been blackmailed that that uh endo had been blackmailing Sekine. and uh one day you know uh, Sekine decided i'm just going to kill this guy um and so he offered him a a stamina drink called yunkeru um and yunkeru like japan has these stamina drinks and i, I don't know how to kind of like you know, in the days before there was Red Bull, Japan had a whole series of stamina drinks. Yunkul by Sato Pharmaceuticals was one of the most popular. And they would sell like, you know, these like $30 versions of the drinks with full of ginseng and caffeine and things to pick you up. And uh, he poisoned, I think he used strychnine, and he poisoned the drink and, and uh, gave it, you know, gave it to Endo and his driver. And they uh, drank it down stupidly. And they died. And then they hauled the body off to Guma, where they chopped it up. And then they, uh, you know, they took off the flesh. And then they burnt the bones um, in, a, in a steel drum. So there was almost nothing left. Actually, one of the things that was valuable um, about Endo's case was that Endo had this very expensive Dunhill, you know, gold-plated lighter. Um, which, you know, which they had stupidly not, you know, not completely burned to a crisp. And that became one of the things that was able to identify him. That also became one of the things I was able to tell, like, you know, in, in a weird way, it's sometimes, you know, it's not easy for the Japanese cops to talk to the organized crime members, but it's easier for me because, you know, they're, they're more careless, right? I'm just a stupid reporter. So some information I would like feed back to, you know, Sakikuchi-san and, and squad like okay endo has this lighter it could be useful in identifying him it looks like this here's a picture of him with the lighter um uh you know and that was that was the serial killer and the wife and the husband thing um eventually you know and this is also in tokyo vice the book but uh, you know i i don't think i'm spoiling you by telling this eventually what happened is the head of the you know the, the japanese police were getting nowhere in their investigation unable to arrest this guy on charges, you know, uh, and not going very well. And then Takada Gumi, uh, Takada-san of the Takada Gumi, 
decided like, you know what? Like, I, like I'm, I'm pretty sure this guy killed my number two. So I'm going to find out what happened. So Takarugumi would just sort of kidnap people close to Sekine again. And then he would drag them to the office and they would interrogate them. Um, and so finally they got one associate of uh, Sekine's driver to make a recording with this guy named Shima, like in which Shima basically said on tape that there's no way you'll find the, you know, no way they'll find the body because we made the bodies invisible. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they, and then this, in this tape with this sort of associate with the Yakuza in which basically Shima is saying like, I know where the bodies are and how they were gotten rid of. They gave this tape to um, Seki, so Takara gave the tape to Sekiguchi-san, who was the detective from the organized crime working on that. And they were like, okay, we need to arrest the driver. And if we arrest the driver, then we will have the information that will allow us to find the bodies and we can arrest this guy for improper disposal of a corpse and we can break the case. And that's how it was done. It was a tape from the Yakuza that broke the case. Wow, that's absolutely mind blowing. And and, grief. and and then something that came out later in the you know later with you know later in the court proceedings, um, you know Shima, who had blabbed everything to the cops, it seemed to be that even though there's not plea bargaining in Japan, that they made a deal um, with him, is which is like you give us everything, you take the witness stand, and we'll let you walk. As and we won't we won't put you as an accessory to murder. We'll just try you for improper disposal of a corpse. You're part of that. Um, and when they did arrest him on charges of uh, of murder, um, he just went ballistic and he blabbed to the press that you know this wasn't the deal we had. And I think eventually the prosecutors dropped the charges, so he never went to trial for murder charges. Wow. He wrote a book about it, which very few people read, called like I, the you know the dog breeder serial killer murders. Um, I, I think the actual Japanese title of the book is like the serial killings of dog lovers. Oh my goodness! Wow, I'm sure you've got tons of stories, Jake, but we've run out of time. Do you want oh, to tell okay. the viewers? Do you want to tell the viewers uh, where they can find you and support you? Sure. Um, you can find me in any bookstore. Uh, if you're really interested in the Yakuza, look for The Last Yakuza, Life and Death in the Japanese Underworld. That The, the UK edition of that is coming out this year. The <laughs> Australian edition and US edition are already out, but you can buy a nice copy at your local bookstore anywhere in, the, in England. Uh, Tokyo Vice is also still available. Or you can listen to um, the podcast I did about missing people in Japan called The Evaporated gone with the gods that's on wherever you listen to your podcast and that has uh has some yakuza content because when people disappear of course yakuza are often involved as a reason for them disappearing um are part of the process of how they disappeared or who they are running away from well i think we've only scratched the surface so i'd love to get you back to continue this at some point but a uh, huge thank you for getting up so early in japan and viewers if you've enjoyed this as much as me Please check out Jake's links. I'll put them below this video and take care wherever you are in the world. So a huge thank you, Jake. Cheers. Thank you. It was a delight being on the show.